Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Sports rehabilitation clinicians are no strangers to the multidisciplinary health and performance environment. We're stronger together when we work as a team to deliver the health and performance support when and where the athlete needs it, which is why I'm delighted to have endocrinologist and female athlete health specialist, Dr. Catherine Ackerman on JOSPT Insights today. Kate's a world leader in health and performance, particularly for female athletes. She's the medical director of the Female Athlete Program at Boston Children's Hospital. She's a team physician for USA Rowing, a member of the International Olympic Committee's Female Athlete and Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport Working Groups, and she's also a former USA national team rower. So she really covers the full gamut of experience in supporting athlete health and performance. And today, together we dive into the challenging world of relative energy deficiency in sport. It's a complex syndrome of impaired physiology, and it's got links to metabolism, menstrual function, bone health, the immune system, protein synthesis, and cardiovascular health, and it's all ultimately caused by low energy availability. Kate Ackerman, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Great to be here with you, Claire. Kate, it's wonderful to hear from someone today who's really at the forefront of supporting health and performance of women athletes of all ages. And today we're talking about energy availability as it relates to health and performance of athletes. The podcast, the JOSPT Insights podcast, aims to reflect the multidisciplinary environment that clinicians are working in, in sports rehab and sports medicine. And that's why it's so wonderful. And I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast today. We're also committed to bringing the listeners the latest from experts who are contributing to research and clinical practice. And you're doing both in this area of relative energy deficiency in sport that we're going to talk about today. And I know that there's a lot going on in this space and been some major shifts in the field recently, and particularly in how we think about supporting athlete health and performance, relative energy deficiency in sport, REDS. What is it and how common is it? So relative energy deficiency in sport or REDS is when an athlete isn't getting enough calories in for how much they're expending, basically affecting what they need just for regular physiologic function. And then also what they need for their performance and for their health. This can happen to women. This can happen to men. It's really common. And when we talk about prevalence, it's, it's hard to quantify because I think we're learning more and more. So it's hard to actually measure energy availability. So a lot of times we get the information about prevalence or incidence off of surveys. Uh, When you talk to athletes about eating disorders, disordered eating, or just low energy availability, you can get a lot of different numbers. So for example, we did a survey of female patients that came to our clinic for a variety of reasons. They were ages 15 to 30 and 47% of them screened positively for disordered eating or an eating disorder. Other times when we're measuring energy availability, we find that a lot of people happen to be suppressed and this can be inadvertent. They might just not realize how much they need to eat for the amount that they're expending. So for example, a study looking at heavyweight or openweight male rowers found that as they increased their training, they weren't necessarily getting the number of calories that they needed 
they needed sometimes up to 10,000 calories a day. And they just had no idea that they needed to increase their caloric intake by that much. In general, the ideas about what populations are most susceptible Overall, females tend to be more susceptible to a certain energy availability deficit where they'll see worsening health problems. So basically a higher energy availability cutoff seems to lead to some problems for women, but this can happen in men too. They just seem to have a little bit lower cutoff on the energy availability level. And we're still trying to determine what that is. Leanness sports. um, So sports where there's a weight category like lightweight rowing or wrestling Um, sports that are aesthetic sports. So that could be things like dancing, um, sports where there might be an advantage to being lighter or there's a perceived advantage to being lighter. So um, ski jumping or a sport where somebody might need to be lifted into the air. So figure skating, these are all sports that might be a little bit more susceptible, but it can definitely happen to athletes across the board. Endurance sports, runners are, are a group that's very much affected by this as well. Kate, can you talk about the difference between female athlete triad and REDS? Because I think I'm still hearing some people talk about female athlete triad and occasionally reading about it in research. So female athlete triad is a term that was coined earlier in the 1990s. It was based on really important work that was started by Dr. Barbara Drinkwater and others. There's a lot of great research behind it. And the idea is, again, the basis is low energy availability. Um, And so initially it was not enough caloric intake, and this would then lead to menstrual dysfunction, and this would also lead to low bone density. So it was this combo of the three things, and low energy availability has an effect on menstrual function, and that lack of estrogen from lack of menstrual function was affecting bone. And then over time, we realized that these were all intertwined. So they had independent effects, and they had synergistic effects, and a lot of the hormones that are necessary for normal reproduction are also important for bone. So that was the focus of the triad. And a lot of research has been based on the bone outcomes and the menstrual function outcomes. And so the triad is still a component of one of the diagrams. There are two diagrams for REDS. There's the health consequences and the potential performance consequences. So the triad is still in there, but REDS really highlights that there are other health and other performance consequences that can happen. As a clinician, I still use the word triad when I'm talking about those three entities, low energy availability, menstrual dysfunction, and poor bone health or bone stress fractures or decreased bone density. But I really like the term REDS when I'm talking about just the other global effects. And not everybody with low energy availability is going to present with menstrual dysfunction first or poor bone density first. They might present with a different injury or recurrent injury. They might might present with fatigue. They might present with decreased performance outcomes. And so it's nice to be able to highlight that this low energy availability is the basis for a lot of different things that may be relevant to an athlete. A lot of what you're talking about there is also relevant to what the sports rehabilitation clinician is going to encounter in day-to-day practice. And, And that's why I think it's so important for us to talk about these issues. Before we get there, can you tell me a little bit about how you would diagnose REDS? So it's a tricky diagnosis. I think when you've been doing this for a while, sometimes you can just tell, you know, there's that spidey sense where you see an athlete and you can see that they maybe are a little bit more withdrawn or they're not responding as well from their workout. So as a coach, you might see that an athlete is performing differently or acting differently as a physio or as a PT or an ATC, you might be seeing an athlete regularly and noticing that they're dropping in weight, that they're just, their habitus is looking different. 
Um, so there are a lot of different signs that you can see sort of globally. I'd say as a clinician, I can often spot it. And then it's really my job to convince the athlete or convince the people around the athlete, the parents, the coaches, the others, that this is an issue. So for example, if somebody presents with having lost their menstrual cycle and they're coming to see me and they are saying, I used to get normal menstrual cycles and now I don't, that's a little bit easier. There are different reasons for why that could happen. And that's part of the workup. But if somebody says, for example, during COVID, I thought I would work out more and start eating a little bit more healthily. And turns out I lost my menstrual cycle. Well, there I can see a pretty good connection. You increased your exercise, you decreased your intake or more cognizant of what you were eating and maybe you weren't getting enough nutritional needs met. So that one's a little bit simpler. Other times it might be that the athlete thinks they're doing everything right. They don't think they've changed their training all that much, but it turns out they've actually changed their body composition. They've actually gained more muscle mass. And so relatively they have less, less percent body fat. And in those patients, sometimes we, when we get a DEXA or a bone density scan, we can see the body composition and we can see that their percent fat is actually pretty low relative to their bone density and their muscle mass. So we all have a certain amount of essential required fat that we need for our hormones to function, sort of signaling from our body to say that we're healthy enough that we can actually have a reproductive system working. And again, the reproductive system is not just for reproduction, but those hormones that are important for reproduction are important for other systems in the body because things are so intertwined. So it might be based on big weight loss in somebody. It might be based on a big change in their behavior and their performance. It might be actual visual visualization of how much weight they've lost or the number on the scale. Or if we're doing labs, we might see things like a decreased white blood cell count. We might see suppressed estradiol or suppressed testosterone. We might see a low T3, a type of thyroid hormone. So there are a few different ways that we can diagnose it depending on how the athlete is presenting. I'm wondering how can I, as a sports physical therapist, an athletic trainer, a sports rehabilitation clinician broadly, how can I best support an athlete who has a diagnosis of REDS? What should I do and what shouldn't I do? Well, one thing I think that is fantastic about that role is those types of providers have a lot of access to the athlete. So as a doctor, I might not see the athlete as much or a coach often can't really get into the nitty gritty with the athlete and have personal conversations. And it's really often not appropriate for them to be doing that. So the athletic trainer or the PT is doing a lot of hands-on work with the athlete. They're seeing them fairly frequently, whether it's being an athletic trainer for a team or being a PT that's working with an athlete with an injury. There's a lot of interpersonal dialogue that's going on there. So I think it's a great opportunity to really nurture that relationship and become a trusted advocate for the athlete. So here's an opportunity where the athlete might be willing to share some details that they don't feel comfortable yet talking to a new doctor about, or they don't feel comfortable discussing with their coach or their teammates. And so there's an op opportunity to probe a little bit just with some questions and, and ask, you know, how have you been feeling before you had this injury that you came to see me for? Did anything change? Had you been increasing your exercise? Do you feel like you're eating well? You, know, you can ask them some kind of vague questions and then other opportunities to just talk about things globally that aren't even specific to the athlete. I think you can be educating while you're doing musculoskeletal therapy. So you can say things like, you know, it's really important for female athletes to get normal menstrual function, to have a period every month. And, and if that doesn't happen, it's always good to talk to a doctor about that, to make sure that there's nothing else going on. 
just being able to normalize those sort of conversations. It's certainly not the job of the athletic trainer or the PT to, to diagnose all of that, but if they have the resources available to then steer the athlete in a direction, that can be great. You know, hey, maybe you should talk to the sports dietitian for the team, or hey, did you know that you can see a doctor about this? This is something that they specialize in. Those are pretty innocuous conversations that can really get an athlete moving in the right direction. And then I think it can be really helpful if you know for sure that the athlete does have reds and you are that in-between person between the doctor and the coach who can sometimes do weight checks. So we do that with certain teams where the coach shouldn't be weighing the athlete and the athlete often can't come to the doctor's office every week for a weight check. So maybe the athletic trainer is the person who's just getting those weights and relaying them to the medical team. And it's in an easier environment because it's at school. Um, so they can get that protected health information and not make a huge deal out of it to allow the athlete to be able to do their thing at school and not get pulled out of school for these medical appointments all the time. So I think there's a huge role there for a lot of different ATs and PTs. Yeah. And I think part of that, as you alluded to, is just the opportunity to build rapport and build those trust relationships because you're seeing often the PT or the ATC is the person who's working with that athlete a lot, seeing the athlete the most. So that opportunity to build really trusting relationships is, is so critical. Are there some resources that you would point people to, resources that they could either alert the athletes that they work with to or resources for themselves to learn more about REDS and how to how to support best support athletes? What are the resources that you like, Kate? Sure. There are a few different things. So the British Journal of Sports Medicine published the IOC papers about REDS. There was one in 2014. There was one in 2018 that was the update. We also have the REDS CAT, which is a clinical assessment tool that was in BGSM. And these are all public full access papers. Yeah, and we'll we'll link to those on the in the show notes as well so folks can find them easily. Perfect. And then as part of our female athlete conference, if you go to femaleathleteconference.com, we put a lot of information there in terms of different articles that we have written or that we think are really valuable that others have written. The Australian Institute of Sport has a whole female performance health and wellness website now that they're doing a lot of different modules. We're starting to work with them along with the English Institute of Sport and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee to try to build more of those platforms so that we can be sharing that information. But I think that the AIS is doing a great job getting some of those videos out there and getting that content out with our website, as well as with the AIS and some of these others, just getting more athlete stories out there, I think can be really powerful because a lot of these athletes feel really alone or they feel shame about it. And I, I just want to encourage them not to feel that way at all. This is so common. And so I think the more people are reading about other athletes, particularly elite athletes or some of their role models getting out and being very public about what they've struggled with, it really kind of normalizes the conversation. Kate, what are the disaster things that you've seen, disaster comments? What are the things that clinicians absolutely should not say? Or what are your recommendations for like, don't approach the scenario in this way? I always think it's great as sports people, sports practitioners, doctors, athletic entourage to be talking about performance, to talk about health and strength and talk about those types of metrics rather than talking about body image. You know, so often women are just inundated. Girls and women are inundated with the media images of what the ideal body physique is and and what's expected even for a certain sport, which is ridiculous because 
athletes need to perform in a body that they're comfortable with, that gives them the best performance that they can possibly get. That doesn't lead to a lot of excessive stress. And so it's not about meeting a certain ideal phenotype. It's really about the performance and the health and the strength and seeing gains in terms of the performance. So not talking about what somebody looks like is huge. And I think we just need to get that ingrained in our head. Even giving positive comments can be triggering in somebody that may have had an eating disorder or has an eating disorder that you're not even aware about. So saying something about somebody, oh, you look good, or you look like you've gained weight, you needed to, that looks great. That can be extremely triggering. Or, oh, I see you've lost weight. You look great. That can be triggering. So just don't even talk about weight. It doesn't need to be brought up in such a casual way. And there are better ways to frame somebody being healthy and performing well. How do you respond to the comments I've seen recently on social media? Some athletes talking about weigh-ins and body composition checks as regular parts of the screening and kind of the health assessments that happen within their professional team environment. And I've seen a lot of really divisive commentary about, you know, some people saying we absolutely should not do it. Other people saying we absolutely should. It's this professional athlete's job to maintain, you know, particular body composition. How do you see that, Kate, given all of the work that you do in this area? Well, I think those comments about doing the body composition measurement need to be put into a context of what kind of athlete you're even talking about. So when we're talking about young athletes who are adolescents or children, absolutely, we should be not measuring their body composition as part of a team thing. That should just be absolutely taken off of the table. But when we get to the extreme elite level, we also can't be naive. You know, if you have a runner, there's no question that if they are carrying a lot of excessive weight, that's going to have an impact. But it's important to realize what is the best body comp for each individual person. And that's going to vary a lot. You know, we had somebody named Allie Kiefer, who's one of our keynotes for our female athlete conference a few years ago. And she got a lot of criticism online about how her body looked. How could she be so fast and look like that? And she was very outspoken to say, this is where I perform best. So just back off. This is what my body should be doing. And so we need more of that messaging to be happy. Now, does she think about her weight sometimes? Probably, but she's figured out what works best for her. So what's really important is not to just take an entire team and make assumptions about what is ideal across the board. It needs to be done on an individual level, and it should really involve medical people and sports science people and sports dietitians and the athlete to determine what's best. It shouldn't be done with a coach. It shouldn't be done, or it shouldn't be done with a coach globally sharing all that information with other athletes. It shouldn't be public information. Years ago, when I was a competitive rower, we had a coach who actually did our caliper testing and then posted it and posted it so we all could see what everybody's percent body fat was, where they were bigger or smaller, who had the biggest thighs, who had the biggest arms, who had the most fat in their abdomen, that that wasn't productive. It just made people feel bad. So there are ways to do it at the very elite level that could be helpful, but it should be done in a very thoughtful way. Kate, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about menstrual tracking, which you know is clearly related to what we're, what we're discussing here, Reds. Menstrual tracking has been in the headlines a bit recently, particularly around the World Cup when the US women's soccer team talked a lot about how they were using a specific app to track menstrual cycles. What's your take on menstrual tracking? I think menstrual tracking is really important for each individual female athlete. I think we're still not at the stage where we can make huge assumptions about 
what happens on every specific day of the menstrual cycle. That's the kind of research that's going to keep us busy for the rest of my career and many other people's. But I think it's important for people to know their own patterns. So some people might feel terrific during their menstrual cycle. And so they might know that they're going to get the most performance out of themselves during that time because they feel good. Other people might feel horrible because they have horrible cramping and they have a lot of fatigue. So while we know that there's some general ideas about the effects of estrogen and progesterone, you have to keep in mind that different women are different. And so they might have very different responses to how they feel throughout their cycle. But if they know their own cycle, they know when they expect to get it. They are tracking it. So they're making sure that they're getting it every month and they're seeing these patterns. Then they know how to respond a little bit better. So do I feel bloated at a certain time? Do I crave certain foods at a certain time? Do I feel very moody and I'm not going to be able to perform as well as I want, you know, while I'm having these PMS symptoms, that kind of thing. Does my temperature change a lot? And so I really am affected on a hot day running a marathon during my luteal phase. You know, these are, you have to combine the combination of what we know physiologically with what we also know about a lot of combinations of physiologic function in women. So it's very individualized. Let's start to wrap up. Kate, what are your three top tips for sports clinicians, sports rehab clinicians working with female athletes? Number one, realize the really privileged and important position that you're in working with an athlete so frequently. So you can really gain their trust and be an an opportunity to, it's an opportunity to teach the athlete as you're seeing them so frequently. So you can teach them about what is normal, what they should expect just in general in terms of energy and menstrual function and what they should look out for. And be their confidant and and make it a comfortable place where they can maybe tell you about things if they're struggling with food, if they've had menstrual irregularity, if they're feeling some of those signs of reds, because you're someone that they can communicate with. And if that happens, and then you realize that there's an issue there, then make sure that you've encouraged them to talk about it and get help. So you want to be able to say, Hey, I think it'd be great for you to go see the sports dietitian, or I think it would be great for you to go get that checked out with a doctor. You know, don't feel bad, but you have these things available to you. And then third is just really be prepared and have those things available so that you can hand them that information. You can show them where to go because they're going to tell you these things. You want to make sure that you have a plan and have a place to do something with that. So recognize the position, send them a good place and have the places, have the resources. Kate, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about REDS and share these practical tips and resources. We've got a ton of information for folks to follow up. We'll put all of those notes in the show notes so people can find them. Kate Ackerman, thank you for joining me on JOSPT Insights. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.